0: Listening to Robert Wright's Non Zero Podcast. Hi, Anatole. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non Zero Newsletter. This is the Non Zero Podcast. You are Anatole Levin, uh, the director of, I think, what, Eurasian Studies at the Quincy Institute, the Eurasia Program. Uh, of the Eurasia Program. Yes, director of the uh, Eurasia Program. At the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, you also write for The Guardian and uh, and you've written a lot of books. In fact, you know, a recent uh, podcast guest was praising your book. Sadly, uh, she did this after we quit recording, sadly for you, but uh, a book you'd written on Chechnya some time ago that she found very illuminating. You've written a lot of other books, ethical realism and so on. Uh, and um we are going to talk mainly today about Ukraine, about the war, the political context, the prospects uh for it ending at some point. Uh, there's other news today, uh, in the former Soviet Union, which I'm sure hasn't escaped your attention, which is uh the possibility that war is breaking out between Azerbaijan and Armenia. I wanna I want to, I want to uh, get to that a little later, um, unless you have something you want to say about it right now. I mean, apparently, uh, you know, there's this disputed territory kind of enveloped by Azerbaijan. It's ethnically Armenian, and Azerbaijan is attacking it, I gather, today. Is that your sense? Yes. And th- how bad could that get? Well, uh- I mean,
1: for for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh,
0: I think it's probably game over. Um, So they're they're going to be, you mean, subjugated or ethnically cleansed or both?
1: um, uh, In effect, ethnically cleansed. I mean, what may well happen is uh, uh, an agreement um, brokered by the Russians whereby they will be given the chance to leave um, if they wish to. And I'm sure that the overwhelming majority will leave uh, for Armenia because their, their their position under Azeri rule would be intolerable.
0: Hmm. And this is territory that is... Um, do most nations recognize it as part of Azerbaijan, although it hasn't been under their effective control? Is that it?
1: The, the, yes. I mean, the entire um, international community, including Russia... Uh, recognizes it as um as legally part of, of Azerbaijan uh, but negotiations have been going on for 30 years now um about uh, how uh, it could be reincorporated into Azerbaijan uh, while uh, you know providing real security for the um, Armenian majority population um but that uh, required um them to have their own armed forces uh, and that the Azeris were never prepared to agree to. It should be said, by the way, that the you know, the, these issues are always multi-layered um, <clears throat> just as uh, Albanian the rule of the Albanian uh, majority in, um, in Nagorno-Karabakh saved the Albanians from Serbian oppression, mm-hmm. but of course was uh, ruin for the remaining Serbian minority in uh, Kosovo. Um, so uh, the uh, the Azeris of Nagorno-Karabakh, the Azeri minority there, uh, were in effect ethnically cleansed or fled from the Armenians uh, when the Armenians won the war in the early 1990s.
0: So now they are returning, and the Armenians are leaving. Mm-hmm. And you don't think Armenia will? Uh, you don't think this will turn into a larger war? I mean, for one thing, Armenia, uh, I guess, wouldn't might not stand a chance. Um, or or what? Well,
1: I mean, the, the whole um, the whole point of what's happening is that uh, in the past Russia stood behind. Armenia, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, in effect, though Russia never guaranteed Nagorno-Karabakh, but when the the Azeris launched a successful offensive uh, in 2020, uh, Russia stepped in to broker a ceasefire to preserve basically what was left of Armenian Mm -hmm. Nagorno-Karabakh and provided peacekeepers to uh, protect the Armenians there. But, of course, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and the tremendous losses and, obviously, military commitments Russia has made there, uh, Russia is simply no longer in a position to deploy military force mm-hmm. uh, to um, back up its its peacekeepers. Uh, indeed, many of the peacekeepers have been withdrawn to serve mm-hmm. in, in Ukraine. Uh, and... Um, so that has, you know, given the, as there is their opportunity to finish it.
0: So this might well not be happening it were it not for the war in Ukraine. It wouldn't have happened, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, let's talk about uh, Ukraine. Um, now, today, we're taping this uh, Tuesday morning, and it'll post later today, Uh Zelensky, I think, is going to address the UN General Assembly, maybe, and then and then he's going to head to Washington to talk to Biden. Do I have that right? That's it. Yes. Um, I, I mean, broadly speaking, I think we can anticipate uh, some of his themes. Ukraine uh, needs and deserves uh, the support of the world. I assume he'll make that case uh, at the UN. Um, and I assume he'll make the case to Biden. But but I assume that more will go on behind closed doors as well. Do you have a sense for what the contours of the conversation may be between them?
1: Well, Zelensky will obviously be uh, be asking for yet more American military aid uh, and will probably be trying to persuade the Americans that the Ukrainian offensive is, is going well. Uh, although this, I have to say, uh, up to now, really does not seem to have been the case i mean the big question is uh, will they finally start to talk seriously uh, about the possibility of ceasefire negotiations uh, with russia uh, or uh, in effect will this just be you know more of the same we'll we'll give ukraine more support so that Ukraine can go on attacking, if it fails this year, can attack again next year. Uh, the Ukrainians in, over the past year have said repeatedly that they will not, basically will not negotiate anything other than complete Russian surrender um, in Ukraine, that you know, Russia should withdraw its forces and give back all the territory that it has taken since 2014. Well, as far as Russia is concerned, that's a non-starter. No Russian government is going to uh, hand Crimea back uh, to to Ukraine. Um, The Biden administration has been sort of split and ambiguous on this because in public, it has said that, you know, Peace negotiations are entirely a matter for the Ukrainians. But some Biden administration officials in private have said, well, no, we don't think that Ukraine can or possibly even should try to retake Crimea because then um, either they can't, or if they can, then the Russians will, you know, very likely escalate in the direction of nuclear war. Um, uh, but and no Biden administration official has come out and said, therefore, you know, we must um, we must negotiate
0: uh, a settlement. And the question do you know, is, yeah. we'll go, uh, do you, I was going to ask, I mean, don't lose your train of thought, but do you know which Biden officials are making this case? Uh, Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, soon to be former chairman, I guess, um, is has is more or less on record. Uh, since December saying that the situation on the ground is probably not going to get a lot better for Ukraine and implying that you might as well make peace. Do you know uh, within the administration uh, who else might be on that wavelength? Is Jake Sullivan the most likely candidate or what? Uh,
1: No, I mean, from what I've heard, and it would be in tune with his record, uh, but I, of course, cannot confirm this, uh, is that it is um, William Burns at CIA. Oh yeah.
0: That makes
1: um, sense. Because he was ambassador to Moscow in his memoirs. he well, the, the memo has been released in which he warned the then Bush administration against expanding NATO to Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think he has a, a, a much deeper understanding of um, you know where Russian red lines run uh, in Ukraine and you know just how far Russia would be prepared to go. In the last resort. Uh, But as I say, I mean, the point is that expressing private doubts in the end will not be enough. Uh, Somebody will have to come out and actually say, um, this isn't going anywhere, it's it's time to to negotiate. But the problem is that both the uh, Ukrainian administration, but also to a considerable extent, the Biden administration in, in public have, um, you know, as so often happens, I have much more sympathy with the Ukrainians, of course, but have um, have talked themselves into a corner on this from which it will be very difficult to extricate themselves.
0: By saying you mean that it's up to the Ukrainian people and will exert no influence whatsoever?
1: Uh, well, yes, and, and also by saying, you know, again and again, that Ukrainian ter- ter- territorial integrity is... Um, Non negotiable and uh, you know calling for the complete withdrawal of the Russians and saying that you know Putin could end the war tomorrow by uh, simply withdrawing from ukraine uh, which by the way is is obviously true, but it 's not going to happen, um, and that is not a basis on which one can negotiate now i mean that said uh What I think we probably will end up uh, um, with sooner or later, unless we all, of course, end up dead in a nuclear war, is not a formal peace settlement, uh, but uh, a ceasefire. Uh, And then, you know, a little bit like Cyprus or Kashmir, um, you will have a ceasefire, and then you will have, you know, endless negotiations, which probably will never go anywhere but which uh, will in, in effect leave the status quo in place and the question is i mean along what precise lines will the you know will the ceasefire line be drawn it it seems to me that that is really what they are fighting about now in 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 ukraine it's not uh, i find it very hard indeed to believe that either Ukraine or Russia can win a complete victory, Um, uh, unless there is a a total collapse on one side or the other, Uh, or or of course, uh, the Western support for Ukraine collapses as a a result of next year's US presidential elections. Um, That being so, we are looking at, you know, as we've seen in other parts of the world, a Probably in the end, uh, a de facto territorial compromise, but but not a not a formal compromise, because just as Russia can Mm -hmm. no Russian government can agree to give up Crimea, so no Ukrainian government uh, can ever, I think, officially recognise the loss of Ukrainian territory.
0: Uh, Do you think that's true, even if? they were guaranteed, if the newly configured Ukraine were guaranteed admission to NATO? Possibly, but it's a kind of catch-22 situation because
1: they would basically have to be quite clearly formally offered NATO membership first. Um, And uh, uh, until you know, the war is settled, you'll have many NATO countries which will say, um, and not just a ceasefire, you understand, but actually legally settled, there will be many NATO countries which will say, look, sorry, we can't make that kind of commitment. Because after all, you know, Cyprus uh, is a case where ever since 1974, the, the ceasefire has held, basically because the Turks got everything they wanted and then stopped. Uh, and are in an overwhelmingly superior military position. But of course, uh, in Kashmir and in, you know, there was a ceasefire from 2015 to 2022 in the eastern Donbass, uh, but it was repeatedly violated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, a, I, I suspect that, a, you know, a ceasefire will not be uh, be enough. The Ukrainians would actually have to agree to a um, a peace settlement with Russia to get into NATO. And at least as things stand now, that will be quite exceptionally difficult mm-hmm. for a, a Ukrainian government to do, uh, unless, of course, they can claim that they were, you know, simply that they had no choice, that, that the, the right. West forced them to do this. Well, uh, so that that is perhaps a, a possibility, yes.
0: Yeah, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post in December, uh, uh, probably shortly after Millie started talking about this, saying that uh, Biden would be doing Zelensky a favor by, you know, kind of playing the bad cop, and uh, and so that Zelensky could say, well, America's pressuring us; they control the arms flow; we have no choice. Um, that that aside, uh, th- those politics aside, although I do want to get back to Ukrainian politics. I assume that even if you assume that a ceasefire could be effective for the time being, Ukraine's fear would still be that Russia will build up force and eventually start trying to take more Ukrainian territory. Meanwhile, the political situation in the West will have changed. And so Ukraine will be out of luck, right? I mean, so so in other words, Ukraine, if they're going to accept a formal settlement, they're going to demand some kind of security guarantees, ideally from their point of view, Uh, membership in NATO, and you outlined the problems with that, Uh, but they're also going to require some kind of security guarantee. I don't know how formal, if they're going to even accept a ceasefire, right? Security guarantee from the West, some some credible form of commitment from the West.
1: Well, yes, but I mean... (laughs) short of NATO membership, or even actually including NATO membership, uh, it's very difficult to see, you know, what that will actually be. Um, Because, you know, once again, uh, America and the West did not save um, Cyprus from Turkish invasion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And despite, uh, as we can see today in Nagorno-Karabakh, despite... um, uh, endless statements, um, uh, the, the, the West is not going to do anything concrete to save the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, the thing is that, you know, when it's a question of sending your own troops, especially, I mean, sending your own troops and risking nuclear war, um, commitments may not count mm-hmm. for very much, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, especially, of course, if America, God forbid, gets into a position where it is really facing war with China in East Asia, um, then it will be largely up to the Europeans to come to Ukraine's defense. Well, the Poles, maybe, yes. Uh, but I mean, anyone who thinks that the Germans and the Dutch are going to go and fight in Ukraine, <laughs> you know, really hasn't um, looked at their record in recent years.
0: Mm. So uh, it may not have escaped your attention that uh, kind of the logical implication of your analysis is almost complete hopelessness so far as uh, bringing the war to an end anytime soon. Well, depends what you mean by soon. Um,
1: I mean, this year I find it doubtful. Um, But, you know, in the end, uh, if... Ukraine has suffered such terrible casualties already. It cannot go on attacking and attacking without success Mm -hmm. indefinitely. I mean, already you you see massive evasion of military service in in Ukraine, as well as in Russia. And on the Russian side, well, their best chance of, of a greater victory is, of course, precisely for the Ukrainians to Exhaust themselves, and then for Russia to, to counterattack. But I think, I mean, almost like in in the First World War, uh, what we've really seen in this war is the degree to which shifts in military technology, for the moment, really favour the defensive. Um, and so, if Russia goes again onto the defensive, the offensive, then um, perhaps yeah. it will suffer the same fate as the Ukrainians, and eventually. Uh, I mean, unless they're prepared to fight, I mean, a hundred years' war, um, uh, both sides will eventually decide that, you know, further losses are not going to bring them any further serious gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I suppose, I mean, it's a question of time, but it's also a question of just how many people will have to die before they come to this realization.
0: This this question of whether the technology uh, has rendered offense problematic uh, really occurred to me for the first time in, in the wake of this uh, kind of supposed breakthrough in the South. I mean, as you know, uh, Ukraine did succeed in uh, inserting some of its troops in the Russian uh, trent- trenches that are part of the first big defensive line, but it doesn't seem to have gotten any armor across uh, the part of the line that is designed to stop armor. And and I just, uh, and and so that's, it's been two or three weeks since what was reported as, as some kind of uh, breakthrough line happened. And there has not been much in the way of further advance. And it just occurred to me that like, you know, the old conception of a breakthrough is like, okay, there's this big gap you've got. Now you can pour your armor through, just is less plausible when one of the main problems your armor faces is drones, not like other tanks right mm-hmm. and and that is are the drones the main uh the main thing that you think have rendered uh offense more problematic than it used to be
1: that there, there are there are many factors drones are one mines are another you know I was in ukraine in in March I talked to a a lot of soldiers uh, talked to a lot of soldiers missing legs um, as a result of mines, um, and they all talked about the, the, the. They were talking then about the fighting around Bakhmut, but they all talked about the way in which you know mines were were really really slowing up movement
0: mm-hmm.
1: on both sides, and then um, uh, satellites uh, have played a, a role uh, somewhat. You know, reminiscent of the First World War. In the First World War, to break through trench lines, you had to concentrate troops in such large numbers that for weeks in advance, uh, the other side could know exactly where you were going to attack mm-hmm. uh, and could deploy its forces in in response. Well, today, of course, satellite technology uh, gives that uh, ability. And satellite technology, uh, particularly on the Ukrainian side, of course, um, but now also on the Russian, has, has been you know, critical, basically, to identifying where the enemy is concentrating uh, and um, you know, deploying your, your forces uh, in defense. And then, uh, of course, there is also the fact that uh, the tank uh, was obviously the great breakthrough weapon. Um, the tanks then you know, backed since 1940 by ground attack aircraft well the the spread of small scale missiles uh, anti-aircraft missiles anti-tank missiles uh, you know to the soldiers on the ground have been well just absolutely mm-hmm. deadly of course mm-hmm. for so many uh, tanks and, and ground attack aircraft uh, they have to a considerable extent not completely nullified Russia's huge air superiority uh, and um, on the Russian side they have now you know played a, a key part along with drones in um, in nullifying you know all these uh, latest um, tanks that the West has provided to Ukraine.
0: Yeah now uh, so we uh, there may well be something approaching a stalemate in the long run. You know, Zelensky can do the math, right? He knows that so long as Russia remains committed to the war, they have a lot more manpower and Ukraine's going to run out of soldiers before Russia does, uh, assuming there is commitment on the Russian side and at the popular level to some extent and so on. Um, I guess, uh, where do you think his hopes lie? It must be starting to occur to them that they are not going to chase uh, all of Russia's troops out of Ukraine, barring some dramatic developments such as uh, the war somehow drawing NATO in. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind that. Um, Or, you know, you hear talk of some kind of regime collapse in Russia. Uh, That's a real wild card, but it's it's far from obvious that that would lead to a weakened Russian uh, war effort, depending on the successor regime. Where do you think... uh, I mean, to the extent that they're thinking long term in Kyiv, what do you think they're hoping for?
1: Well, you know, I mean, in a war, uh, people often clutch desperately at straws um, mm-hmm. and don't think very clearly uh, about, um, you know, realities or the longer future. And I mean, th- that is also understandable because, of course, there's so often been said, including by Napoleon, that, you know, war is to a considerable extent a question of national will. And therefore, you know, if you are absolutely determined to fight on indefinitely, you know, whatever happens, well, maybe in the end you will win if the other mm-hmm. side is not prepared to fight on. Mm -hmm. indefinitely. But of course, there is a very fine line between that kind of determination uh, and um, stupidity. Oh, not stupidity exactly, but obstinacy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, just a refusal to to, to, to recognize reality. Um, And also, uh, of course, uh, there is the question of where... Whether Zelensky believes his own, you, you know, intelligence reports and um, let alone public statements, because you know, as we've seen again and again, you know, including in the in, in the First World War, but in Vietnam, uh, armies basically lie. Now they may well be lying to themselves as well, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, the Ukrainian forces. As do the Russians, by the way, you know, keep putting putting out figures for Russian casualties, which, which are totally unbelievable, right. you know, fantasies. Uh, I hope that Zelensky doesn't believe these fantasies, because in a, in a war of attrition, uh, well, the the, the 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 greatest Ukrainian hope of attrition against Russia was economic attrition by the West. Mm-hmm. You know that this then economic isolation and sanctions would bring down the Russian economy. Well, that has failed, um, in part, of course, because by far the greater part of the world outside the West won't go along with it. So Russia is not, in fact, isolated. Um, But on the battlefield, in terms simply of um, munitions and guns in in a First World War-style struggle of this kind, um you know on the whole attrition would seem to favor uh, the russians because you know you, you, the high tech western weapons were tremendously useful in stopping the russian advance um uh, last year but uh, you know in, in a battle of trench warfare it is to a considerable extent simply a question of uh how, well a how many shells you have Mm -hmm. But secondly, how many conscript soldiers you can generate. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about this war, I mean, like perhaps all wars to a degree, but certainly modern wars. Um, It it is that, you know, on the one hand, you find the, uh, I mean, to, to some extent, a real vindication of the revolution in military affairs and the tremendous importance of satellite technology, computer technology, drones, you know, all these other things, but on the other hand, You know, we could be in 1917. It is also simply critical uh, to have thousands and thousands of artillery pieces, millions and millions of shells, and hundreds of thousands of conscript soldiers.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I suppose you can imagine some kind of uh, technological breakthrough in the sense of, like, the U.S. right now secretly working on just very cheap drones that are kind of newly effective or something like that but i mean barring and look russia if any has been at least as impressive in the west i guess as the west in uh, marshalling um you know kind of drone uh drone armament so who knows but um in in terms of uh but, but certainly barring that yeah it just seems like a long hard slog that goes nowhere in particular and that probably um favors russia In the long run, um, I want to let's let's get a little more into the the psychology and politics at play on both sides. I I wanted to ask you, you said you spoke to a number of Ukrainian soldiers, uh, a number of them amputees. Uh, I'm wondering what sense you got from them in terms of the ongoing level of commitment in Ukraine and anything else they said that's of interest. I want to first ask, like. When you go there, how are these people selected? Are they like? Does Ukraine choose the soldiers you get to talk to, or do you have a sense that these are representative?
1: Oh, well, in my case, no. Uh, I mean, it, it, no. It,
0: Ukraine it, didn't choose
1: them. Uh, no, I mean the point is, uh, I didn't go to the front line um, precisely because for that you need official permission, and then of course uh-huh. you are uh, followed. You know, you you are embedded with a the unit they choose, and they keep an eye on you. No, I mean, I, I just I um, uh, found veterans, you know, to talk to in Kiev. Uh, I visited uh, a hospital um, in uh, four amputees, uh, a clinic that was fitting them with artificial legs um, in the city of Dnipro. Um, but then I ended up in hospital myself in Zaporizhia as a result of an accident. Um, and there were um, you know wounded soldiers there as well mm. so this was uh, well uh, i mean it was it was selected in, in, uh, sim, simply because the great majority of the soldiers i talked to um uh, had been wounded uh, but it wasn't selected by right. the ukraine okay. authorities and
0: what was the what was the sense you got from them
1: well they all expressed um you know determination to go on fighting they said that uh, you know you, you, that Ukraine, yes, must um, you know go on fighting till it uh, recovers all its lost territories. Um, but of course, one never knows. They are probably going to say that to a to a Western journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them undoubtedly were no question of of, of absolute deep commitment, even ones who had been very seriously wounded. Um, especially among the officers. Uh, others, well, I mean, you know, any 19-year-old kid who's had a leg blown off is not going to look cheerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of them, of course, looked terribly sad and,
0: and depressed. Uh, and, and I gather just walking around like Kiev or something, you just see an unusual number of people without arms or legs. Is that true?
1: Yes. I mean, not this isn't yet on, you know, the, the, the scale of, um, you know, what I saw in Afghanistan, for example, mm-hmm. uh, it, partly because medical services, obviously, in Ukraine are much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, undoubtedly a, a very large number of, of um, severely wounded people.
0: And is your sense that the main political constraint operating on Zelensky, let, let's assume that he did. Believed that there was wisdom in bringing this war to a fairly near-term ceasefire, would the main constraint uh, preventing him from pursuing that be uh, just popular pressure? I mean, both kind of grassroots support for the war and elite support for the war. I mean, of course, it's been encouraged. I understand by kind of you know a fairly a somewhat government-controlled media this attitude. That he uh, uh, of uh, un, pretty unstinting support for the complete expulsion of Russians from the Ukraine, but I, but but I also from Ukraine, but I also think I also gather there's a there's just a lot of heartfelt support for the war, both the grassroots and elite level. Is 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 that the main thing that would be uh, holding him back in this scenario, or is there something? Are there are there other political forces at work?
1: Uh, well i mean undoubtedly it's it's popular sentiment mm-hmm. uh, but of course i mean in particular it is military sentiment um and uh, o- also the um uh, the feelings of, of the ultra the extreme nationalist military groups like Azov, who have grown colossally in terms of power and influence as a result
0: during the war as a result of the war
1: Well yes they have fought very, very bravely. And in particular, I mean, Azov's tremendously courageous and stoical defense of Mariupol, you know, gained them great respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Wars do that. Uh, That, however, uh, does not mean that it transformed them into, uh, you know, liberal, democratic, pluralist political actors. Um, And you know, some senior Ukrainian officials themselves have said on the record that if uh, Zelensky um, tries to negotiate even a, a ceasefire with Russia without regaining all Ukraine's lost territory, in in the words of one of them, he will have signed his his political death warrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I have to say, every Ukrainian analyst and journalist I talked to said that. Uh, They expected the the Ukrainian military commander, General Zaluzhny, to run for president in future, uh, either in succession to Zelensky or against Zelensky, if the circumstances seem right. Of course, for
0: now, they postponed all elections uh, on grounds that martial law applies so long as the war goes on, right?
1: Well, yes. And of course, the interesting question there is, um, what do you mean by how long the war goes on? Mm. Uh, until a ceasefire or until a final peace settlement. If it's until a final peace settlement, there may never be elections in Ukraine again.
0: Mm. Um, So then on the Russian side, uh, uh, you wrote a piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, started out talking about Prigozhin. Uh, and his demise wound up getting into kind of the political forces impinging on Putin so far as uh his attitude toward continuing the war or being willing to uh do a ceasefire are are concerned and uh i I took away from that that yeah, he might well be ready for a ceasefire but but maybe you can um tell me if I got that wrong. My, my sense was that you were, you were saying that, yes, he, he faces, uh, you know, uh, you know, pressure from the nationalist right to continue the war until they've conquered more of Ukraine, but the nationalist right is somewhat under control. Actually, he's been weakened, uh, by the the killing of Prigozhin. perhaps, uh, something that they're not entirely happy about also, perhaps. Um, but that, uh, you know, most people. The, 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 you felt that Putin could sell to most Russians and and many Russian elites the idea that if the war stops now, this is victory for Russia. Do I do I have that about right? Well, that is certainly what a majority of my informants told me. Yes, mm-hmm. uh,
1: that uh, if Putin, you know, for example. Accepted a peace proposal from Brazil or you know India or whoever uh, saying um, uh, you know ceasefire and negotiations without preconditions along the present battle lines that he would that that a large majority of the Russian population would accept this and you know with of course uh, the. Uh, state propaganda and television all coming out in support of this, that that this would be presented as enough of a victory mm-hmm. if Putin was willing to do this. Now, of course, there would be ultra nationalists and people within the army who would be bitterly unhappy with this. Uh, because, I mean, if you read what they've been saying, you know, they are still, they they still basically want to conquer if not all of ukraine then certainly you know most of ukraine they are still mm. out for uh, for a much much greater victory um, now the thing is though that to, to achieve that they are also saying that we you know that russia must launch total mobilization i mean back to 1942 um cons- conscript millions of men um nationalize the whole of industry and convert it into war industries well so far putin has not been willing to do that i mean he's you know he has proceeded very cautiously and no doubt because uh, he he thinks that that um would be very unpopular then with mm-hmm. much of the russian population um you know if actually a, a large majority of russians saw their own relatives being sent off to fight and die and of course it would completely undermine the regime uh, among the economic elites if they actually saw their businesses not just being, you know, told to return to Russia and invest in the war effort, but actually saw their businesses being seized by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has, you know, acted to, to, to limit the influence of the, um, of the hardliners. But what, of course, we don't know, it's pure speculation, and by the way, I mean, none of my Russian informants claim to know either, is exactly what's in Putin's own mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the answer may perhaps be that he doesn't know himself. After all, I mean, the point is, just at the moment, um, the, the, it's clear that the, the, the Western Ukraine would reject a ceasefire proposal along these lines so right. you know, in, in in a way what what's the point of putin you know risking the fury of his own extreme right uh, by making a proposal that will be rejected out of hand
0: oh sure no i, I assume it would take the, the very active intervention of the us to uh get this to a point where it'd be politically feasible for either side in a way um to 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 take a step of course you know china could exert pressure and so on a lot of things could happen but um uh, uh, uh did did you see this uh kind of odd new what apparently is a new military recruiting ad? And we should say Russia claims that even without mobilization, it's having great success with old-fashioned recruiting, you know, a couple hundred thousand people have come online or something, soldiers, two, three hundred thousand. Um, did you did you see this uh this thing that I saw for the first time yesterday? It's a apparently a military recruiting ad where two Russian soldiers are in a trench and one of them is looking forward to going uh, to live in Kiev, where I think one of his relatives lives after the war and they take Kiev. And the other one says, well, I like the ocean, so I think I'm going to live in Odessa. Now, um, you you, uh, did, you you saw this?
1: I, I didn't see it, but um, uh, I, I was just smiling because I remember a German cartoon from the winter of 19... Um, uh, 19- Fourteen, fifteen, in which you have German uh, soldiers in a trench um, from was the magazine, and uh, one of them's playing the guitar and the other are, are singing, and they sing that the, something to the, along the lines of, "Yes, the wind is cold, uh, but next year the wind will blow us to Paris." Right. Um, well, it didn't. <laughs> um.
0: no, no, and and. And I I wouldn't uh, necessarily hold out uh, hopes if I were Russian for uh, early major progress, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, if you haven't seen the ad it it, uh, uh, maybe you can't comment, but like what it says that the government is now uh, raising these kinds of expectations. Now it could well be that the ad was just put out by the defense ministry and Putin didn't sign off on it. Who knows? But it, I thought it was the kind of raising of stakes uh, in a subtle way.
1: Yes, I mean, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, but war propaganda is rather like that. Mm -hmm. People get carried away. Um, Whether it really reflects Putin's hopes, we we, we just don't know. I mean, I'm sure that Putin still hopes that... um, Uh, Russia can take more territory. Uh, You know, no doubt he hopes that, indeed, the Ukrainians will go on and on attacking until they wear themselves out and then Russia can counterattack. But what we don't know is how much more will be enough. Um, uh, Back last year, a a good many uh, Russian analysts said to me that if, you know, they thought that if if Russia could conquer the whole of the Donbass, uh, or the the uh, provinces that Russia has claimed to annex, but has in fact only partially occupied. That that would be enough to declare victory and mm. call for a ceasefire. Um, but of course, Russia has not has not managed to do that. Um, and it would take you know tremendous efforts by Russia. Uh, mm. Remembering that you know Russia tried and tried and tried for months just to capture this very small town of Bakhmut in the west of Donbass. Even to achieve that would take a huge military effort. But I think it is possible that if Russia could take that much, then, you know, Putin with much greater credibility could claim victory and offer a ceasefire.
0: But who knows? Yeah, I mean, especially since uh, they have, although they haven't taken all of the Donbass, they've taken land... uh, beyond the Donbass in the South, that is arguably uh, much more important strategically because it creates the much discussed land bridge to Crimea, which I assume Russia feels the need for more than ever now that its bridge to Crimea has gotten blown up a couple of times. Um, the uh, Go ahead. Well, well, that's it, because, you
1: know, since obviously we sympathize with the Ukrainians, you know, when we talk about the future, Um, You know, we we talk about security guarantees for for Ukraine and how could these be guaranteed under a ceasefire. But of course, from the Russian point of view, uh, they need security guarantees for Crimea. Um, And, you know, unless they get a, a cast iron peace settlement guaranteed by the United States, leaving Crimea in their hands, uh i mean apart from all the you know the, the political issues involved militarily speaking they can't leave southern zaporizhia uh and uh uh because it's yeah i mean it is their vital link to crimea and without it uh crimea would be uh utterly vulnerable to a you know a new attack by ukraine yeah uh this this I... doesn't you know saying this uh, you know, I'm in in part uh, uh, a military historian, um, you know, because having covered several wars as a journalist, I became interested in reading about the military history. And I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you read British accounts of the First and Second World Wars, um, and, you know, the, the actual progress of fighting on the battlefield, um, it's not that they that the writers sympathise with Nazi Germany. They it's just that they, as professional military historians, they write about you know military and strategic realities. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, listen, we've been talking for uh, not quite an hour, but close to that. And one thing we tend to do on this podcast uh, these days is uh, you know. Put that much of the conversation out as a public podcast, uh, and then uh, talk some more. In over time, that is available to paid subscribers of the Nonzero newsletter, which you can become by googling Nonzero and uh, Substack, or uh, by just clicking the link in the show notes uh, on your smartphone app. and uh, And thereafter, you can get a special podcast feed that uh, has all the bonus content all the bonus podcast content. And of course, you'll also have access to the bonus print content in the newsletter. And you'll be supporting uh, conversations like this if you think they're worthwhile. Uh, now, Anatoly, you've been kind enough to agree to uh, to go into overtime with me. I appreciate that. Uh, because for one thing, I want to ask you about whether, um, uh, you know, like the the Ukrainian attacks on Russia proper and on Crimea from Odessa, Change, uh, well, the Russian uh, calculus about how much territory they feel they need or changes the level of uh, public commitment to the war in Russia. Uh, So we'll get into that and some other things. But before we go there, I want to ask if you want to say anything about where people can find your stuff. As I said, uh, you know, you're at Quincy, you write for uh, both The Guardian and Responsible Statecraft, uh, uh, Quincy's publication. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? St- are you still on on Twitter, as I continue to stubbornly call it? Yes, yes, I am. I'm Anatole Leven. Um, and uh, you can find um,
1: uh, you know all my pieces for the Quincy Institute on the uh, Responsible Statecraft um, and on the Quincy site where you know, longer papers and reports are, are yeah. posted. Um, I, uh, I, I do have a website of my own, but I, I desperately need to update it.
0: Okay, well, we won't embarrass you by revealing its coordinates. Then, before you've <laughs> updated it, the uh, anyway, I really encourage people to check out your work. It's hard. It's hard in any war to find relatively dispassionate analysis that uh, aims to understand the perspective on uh, both sides. Even though I think it's valuable for all concerned, and, and ultimately to understand those perspectives, and you're 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 really good at it, and you have been for some time. So, I encourage people to check out your work. Uh, And with that said, uh, we will head into overtime now.